Thank you, ladies, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, we're starting a new series today, and it's kind of a different one, different for me, the way it's going to be put together, and it probably calls for some explanation. So um, I'm going to do that now. Hopefully you'll comprehend it, and... Uh, and then uh, Tim will be coming up to read some scripture that will prepare us for uh, the first message today. Uh, I'm going to ask Rachel if she would put the uh, graphic up for this series. Uh, the series is going to be called Chapters You Should Know. Now, you should know them all, right? I mean, I'm not picking out four chapters in scripture and saying they're the most important. But here are four chapters in Scripture that you should know. You should know the content of these four chapters. What we're going to do in the series, it will be a 12-message series. So we're going to go from today to the end of May to do this series. Uh, in the series, we will be looking at these four chapters in Scripture. We'll be looking at Genesis 3, and uh, we will do three messages in that chapter. And in Genesis 3, we're going to learn about how sin came into the world and the consequences of that. Then we will move to John chapter 10 in the Gospel of John, and we will do three messages to go through John 10. And there we are going to be reminded that Jesus is the good shepherd. But the emphasis of that chapter is that when you know the good shepherd, you are safe and secure. And so we're going to be talking from that chapter about security in knowing Jesus. Then we will go to 1 Corinthians 15, that chapter, and we will have three messages, you getting the pattern? Three messages through 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul asks and answers an interesting question. The question is, what will our resurrection body look like? You ever wondered that? After the resurrection... What will our new body look like? And so we'll find out in those three messages from 1 Corinthians 15. And then to wrap up the series, we will go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And yes, there will be three messages going through 2 Peter 1. And there we're going to find out that as followers of Christ, we have everything we need. Whether you think that or not, the Bible says in that chapter that as a follower of Christ, you have everything you need to live a godly life. And we'll see what Peter has to say about that and how that works out in the life we live for Christ. So if you do your math... Four chapters you should know, three messages from each chapter, four times three, you with me? Twelve weeks, twelve messages. So that's how it all fits together, and uh, that's what we're going to start today, this journey through those chapters. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, the first of these three four chapters, uh, but I've asked Tim to come up, and he's going to read from Genesis 2 to kind of set the stage for the chapter we're going to start looking at today. So if you could open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, starting with verse 15. The 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, let's not get too hung up on the words, they were both naked. The important words I want you to see in that last verse of chapter 2 are the words, and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. What is that verse talking about? Shame. They're feeling shame. Isn't that interesting? The last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis, the man and his wife felt no shame. Verse 7 of chapter 3 They're feeling shame. So the question is, what has happened between 2.25 and 3.7 to bring about such a drastic change? That's what we're going to look at as we begin working through Genesis 3. The difference between those verses took place after a conversation. Between those two verses, there is a conversation that changed everything. One conversation changed everything. And so we're going to look at that conversation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'll guide us as we enter this this new series, especially today as we enter Genesis 3. Father, uh, I ask that you would increase our knowledge, help us to understand to some degree how sin came into this world. Help us to understand to some degree this conversation that brought that about. And Father, I pray that in some way, many of us will see some relevancy to our own lives and experience. So God, we ask your blessing. This is your word, and we're about to study it. So Lord, please 
uh, do your work through it. In Christ's name, amen. What Tim read for us in chapter 2 was to remind us that as we enter chapter 3 of Genesis, everything was perfect. Everything was perfect. And then this conversation took place, and everything got messed up. And it happened, this conversation happened in paradise. It was paradise. God had created this beautiful world. His creation was good. He created a man. He created a woman. They were very good, created in His image. He brought them together as husband and wife. And it was good. God gave the man this home to live in. It was a garden. It was called the Garden of Eden. You know what Eden means? Paradise. A place of beauty and happiness. It's like Shangri-La. Paradise, Eden. They had everything they needed. Everything. God had given the man rule over creation. He was to cultivate it, and it was going to cooperate. God had given them all kinds of things to eat, to sustain them. This garden was a paradise. It was perfect. In the middle of the garden, we're told there were two trees. There was the tree of life, which they got to eat from, and because they were eating from the tree of life, they were going to live on forever. It was the tree of life. It sustained life. And in this paradise, there was only one rule. Can you imagine, kids, if there was only one rule in your home? Can you imagine if there was only one rule at school? There was only one rule in paradise. They could eat of any tree they wanted, except one. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Couldn't eat from that. Otherwise, they had total freedom in this paradise. And then the day came where there was this conversation that took place. So let's see the conversation. Chapter 3. And remember, it's happening in paradise. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. So we have a conversation. It takes place in paradise, the Garden of Eden. It's a conversation between the serpent and the woman. 
Was it a talking serpent? Was there an audible conversation going on here? Was it like Narnia? Was it like Lord of the Rings? We don't know. Maybe the serpent was at this point able to speak and be audible. And the conversation took place that way. Maybe it happened in some other way. But it was a conversation. And it was between the serpent and the woman. We know from other scriptures that it was actually the devil, Satan, that fallen angel, who was using this animal, using the serpent. And it was actually him having the conversation with the woman. We, we learned that at the end of the New Testament in Revelation, in uh, chapter 12 of uh, Revelation, the devil is uh, introduced this way in verse 9. John talks about the great dragon that was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. John identifies the serpent of old as Satan, the devil. And again in Revelation 20, verse 2, he is described in the same way. He is that serpent of old, the devil. And so we have this conversation between the serpent and the woman, between Satan and the woman. But we also have to notice that according to verse 6, the man, Adam, was also nearby. Did you notice that? It says she gave some to her husband who was with her. Literally, the way it's worded uh, is right there with her. Okay? So he wasn't with her in spirit <laughs> and off somewhere else in the garden. He was right there with her. You don't want to miss that part of the text. So, conversation between Satan using this serpent and the woman, with Adam, the man, right there. Have you ever uh, have you ever been in a situation that you thought, or at least it felt like, it was perfect? You ever been in a situation like that where you thought, this is ideal, this is great, you know? And you thought you had really arrived, this was your dream. And then something happened to mess it up, to totally change it, or maybe you made a choice. that totally changed the situation. That's what we're going to see happening as a result of this conversation. It starts out with some, I'll call it dissection. You know what dissecting is? When you dissect something, you kind of pick it apart. You kind of pick, pick apart all the details, okay? And that's kind of what happens between the serpent and the woman. Dissection. And what are they dissecting? They're dissecting God's command. They are dissecting the words God spoke. They're picking it apart. They're even dissecting God's motives. Picking apart the motives of God. They're dissecting God's character. 
Is he really good? Does he make promises he never intends to keep? Does he keep good things from his people? In this conversation, they're dissecting his very character and integrity. Let's look at how that happens. The serpent begins. He says, did God really say? And then he misquotes God. If you listen to Tim when he read chapter 2, he misquotes God. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? No, that's not what he said. But see, Satan is doing something that he has led people to do ever since then. Dissect God's word. Misquote God's word. Pick apart God's word. Question God's word. That's what he's doing. He's dissecting it. He's misquoting it. And he's raising the question, did he really say that? Well, the woman corrects him. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. He didn't say don't eat any of the fruit. We can eat from the trees. And then she gets caught up in the dissection. She says, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, she's adding something, isn't she? Did you listen to Tim when he read in chapter 2? God never said you can't touch it. She adds a little detail here that God never said. So she starts getting involved in the dissection and the picking apart and the misquoting and the conversation goes on. Verse 4. The serpent says, you will not surely die. Come on. You're kidding me. You believe that stuff? You won't die if you eat from that tree. God didn't mean that. He goes on and says, but here is why God keeps you from eating from the tree. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Now, in a sense, he's right, because isn't that what God said? Don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent is raising this, this idea that maybe God's motive is suspect here. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be more like him. And you're going to know good and evil. Right now, all you know is good. But there's so much more you could know. And God doesn't want you to know that because you'll be more like Him. Coming from a being who decided what way back prior to this? That He wanted to be God. So he begins to plant the same idea <laughs> into the woman's mind. God doesn't want you to be like him and have this extra knowledge that he has. So he's keeping something from you. And so he's beginning to plant these, these seeds of thought of, questioning God's character, his integrity, his motives, all those things. And really, it looks like it's beginning to work. 
it looks like it's creating these doubts in the woman's mind, right? Creating these doubts. And these doubts begin to lead to desire on the part of the woman. Because notice, verse 6, when the woman saw um, the serpent is starting to impact, what would you say, impact the woman's senses. Okay? He's working on her senses. It says, when she saw with her eyes that the fruit of the tree was good for food. Oh, that looks good. Probably was beautiful fruit. And friends, we don't know if it was an apple or not. But it was beautiful fruit, and she saw that it was good. It really looked good. Delicious. And it says it was pleasing to her eye. It was beautiful. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She was kind of grabbing on to what the serpent said, right? I can have more wisdom. I can know more just by eating this. That maybe God is keeping me from something good, something more. And that desire is is building. And it leads to disobedience. She took some and ate it. She disobeyed. The one rule, the one limit in all of paradise. And she was talked into violating it, disobeying. It started with just this dissection of God's command, picking it apart, questioning it, putting words into God's mouth that he didn't speak which then began to raise doubts about God's goodness, his motives, his, his character, his intentions, all that. And then she started to see that fruit in a, in a new way. It began to create desires. And she takes action and disobeys. I find it real interesting <clears throat> that the Apostle Paul helps us understand what's going on in this conversation between the woman and the serpent. Uh, turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is expressing his fear is that something's going to happen to the people in the church at Corinth that happened back in the garden. And in saying this, he gives us some insight into what was happening in that conversation. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your Simple and pure devotion to Christ. He actually describes for us what was happening in that conversation in the garden, in paradise. Satan, by his cunning, was deceiving Eve. And how did he do it? Played with her mind. He was leading her mind astray from a pure, simple devotion. What was a pure, simple devotion for Eve? Well, if God says there's one thing we can't do, then I'm not going to do it. That's pure and simple, isn't it? I want to do what God says and He said, don't eat from that tree. Well, then I'm not going to eat from that tree. Just pure, simple 
devotion. But Paul says what, what the serpent, what Satan was doing through the serpent was playing with her mind, cunningly deceiving her and leading her mind astray through the dissection of God's words, through the misquoting of God's words, through the questioning of God's intentions and motives. He was playing with her mind to lead that mind astray. And it worked, didn't it? It worked. That's what was happening. So we have in this conversation dissection of God's command, motives, character. We have doubt being created. We have a desire being created, and then the actual disobedience, the action of violating God's will. But we also have one other thing that's going on in this conversation. And I call it dereliction. You've heard the term dereliction of duty, right? It's the idea that you abandon or neglect your responsibility. And there's dereliction going on in this conversation. By whom? The man. By Adam. Who was right there, the text says. I suggest to you that the man was guilty here of dereliction of duty. The man had a responsibility to rule over creation. But he doesn't stop what the serpent's doing. The man had a responsibility to protect his wife. But he stands by and lets her be deceived. And take the action of disobedience. There's dereliction of duty here. And it seems like what's happening is the man is neglecting one responsibility to protect his wife. And by doing that, assuming another responsibility. You know what that responsibility is that he assumed? Responsibility for sin coming into this world. Because Scripture does not lay the responsibility of sin coming into the world upon the woman. It doesn't. Turn with me to Romans. Book of Romans. Chapter 5. We're not going to read this uh, verbatim because the parts of it that I want you to see are actually on your study sheet. But you need the practice of turning to Romans. But it's in Romans chapter 5. And starting in verse 12, Paul presents some very important things. And what he is basically saying is that the man is held responsible for the fall, for sin coming into the world. And I suggest it's because of his dereliction. His dereliction of duty, of responsibility. He was responsible to control the creation, the serpent. He was responsible to protect his wife. And he doesn't do it. He's there during the conversation. His wife eats of that forbidden fruit. Then she offers it to him, and he disobeys God and eats of it. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, Paul uh, presents uh, this teaching, and I just want to uh, draw your attention to these six statements that he makes in that passage that all point to basically the same thing. 
and what I'm suggesting here about responsibility. He says in verse 12, sin and death enter the world through one man. Verse 15, many died by the trespass of the one man. Verse 16, the result of the one man's sin was judgment and condemnation. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned. Verse 18, the result of the one trespass was condemnation for all. Verse 19, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it? The one man, the one man, the one man. Adam neglected responsibility, and by doing that, he assumed another serious responsibility. Sin coming into the world. And because of that, all have sinned. Isn't that what Paul teaches? Um, chapter 3 of Romans um, Verse 9, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5, that verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, that we are by nature under the wrath of God. We are not only sinners, we sin, but we have a sin nature. It's in our nature, the bent towards sin. We're sinners by nature, and then we quickly prove it by choice. And it all started in paradise. Isn't that amazing? It all started in paradise. With the disobedience. Doesn't sound fair, does it? Romans five doesn't sound fair. That through one man's choice in paradise. From then on, all are sinners. All have this sin nature, this bent towards sin, and all commit sin. It doesn't sound fair. I just started reading a book called Fairness is Overrated. Kids, keep that in mind. Fairness is overrated. Romans 5 doesn't sound fair, but it's what it says. It's God's truth. Sin came into the world, as a result of a conversation in paradise, where the woman was deceived. And eventually led to her disobeying God. But then the man who was responsible disobeyed. And he is responsible for the mess that followed. Adam and Eve represented mankind, right? They were the first ones. The first man, the first woman. And so you could say in a way they represented mankind. And in representing mankind, all of mankind that would follow, they disobeyed the one command of God. You could also say that, and it would be true, that at that time in the garden, Adam and his wife were mankind. They were all of mankind. And so when they sinned, 
all mankind sinned. 100% of mankind at that time sinned. And I don't know if those are explanations as to why Romans 5, that we're all sinners and we all have sin nature because of that. I don't know if that's a good explanation or not. But it's true. It's true what Paul says. We're all sinners. We all fall short. Um, we have a sinful nature. By nature, we are sinners. And we prove it very quickly by choice. And that's where it started. In paradise, as recorded in Genesis 3. So, as you see at the bottom of your sheet, all are sinners by nature. You could maybe call it inherited sin. That doesn't mean from our parents or, you know, but from the one man. Uh, He brought it about. All are sinners by nature and by choice. And this can be hard for some to accept. But it is true. Have you personally acknowledged this truth? I knew a man who had a hard time accepting that truth. His name was Ed. Ed and his family showed up at our church, the church we were at before here, because he had heard that we had an adult class on Sundays that discussed the Bible. And he liked to discuss the Bible, only his definition of discussing the Bible was debate with Christians. And he heard that we offered that opportunity, not the debating part, but the discussion part. And um, when he found that out from some friends, they started showing up. And they they went through this um, class on the Gospel of John. And he did what he was good at. He debated what we were seeing in the Gospel of John. After a number of weeks of him being in the class, Janine and I invited Ed and his wife over for a meal. After the meal, we were sitting in the living room, and um, the subject of this class came up. I asked him what he thought of it, if he was enjoying it, and he said he really liked it. He was really glad that we had the opportunity to discuss the Bible. But he said, you know, there's one thing that I, I, I don't understand. He said, he said, you people talk about being Christians. What do you mean by that? Don't we just pray for openings like that? Don't we? I mean, he just opened the door. He said, you people talk about being Christians. What do you mean by that? So I began to share the gospel message with him, um, the salvation message. I didn't get very far because I brought up the fact that we're all sinners, separated from God. And he said in a way that only Ed could say, wait a minute. And he would raise his hands like that, wait a minute. And he said, what do you say to a man who has never sinned? Well, first of all, I thought, I don't know what to say because nobody's ever said that to me. You know, what do you say to a man who's never sinned? What would you do at that point? What would you say? Well, here's what I did. I grabbed my Bible from uh, the little table by the couch. And I opened it to First John. chapter 1, and I walked across the room and I handed it to Ed. And I pointed it out. I said, Ed, would you just read out loud to me uh, where it says, verse 8, 
And then verse 10. So he took the Bible and he read out loud these words. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. And he shut the Bible. You see, I didn't want to tell Ed he was a liar. I didn't want to tell Ed he was calling God a liar. I wanted him to tell himself that by reading it out loud. When Ed and his wife left that night, they were not Christians. Okay? But we did have a great conversation about sin. And Ed did leave that night believing he was a sinner. It turned out his view of sin was, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery, been unfaithful to my wife. He listed about three or four of those biggies, you know. And based on that, he had never sinned. But he left that night acknowledging and believing that he was a sinner. As we talked about what sin is and where it came from. And uh, about a month later of continuing to come to this study on John, uh, Ed was doing chores in his barn one day, thinking through the things that he'd been learning and conversations. And he ended up on his knees in the milk room, confessing his sins and seeking God's forgiveness and surrendering his life to him. They became missionaries in Guatemala. Uh, went through the YWAM training, became wonderful believers. And they're both with Jesus today. We're all sinners. All have sinned. All come into this world with a bent towards sin, a sin nature, Paul calls it. And it separates us from God. And how did that happen? It happened because of a conversation in paradise. It would be rare, but maybe someone's here today who can relate to Ed. Maybe you have a hard time accepting the idea that you could be a sinner. I don't know. Many of you, I'm sure, have acknowledged that and done something about it. You've repented of that sin. You've sought the forgiveness of God that was provided by Jesus on the cross in his death. But hey, what was going on in that conversation didn't stop there once you trusted Christ for salvation. Because remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 3. He's talking to Christians in his day. And he's saying, I'm afraid. These are Christians he's talking to. I'm afraid that just like the enemy deceived Eve, your minds might be led astray from a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Watch out. That strategy worked in the garden. And according to Paul, Satan will still have conversations with people today about that. Dissecting what God says. Picking it apart. Misquoting it. Raising questions about the character of God and the motives of God and creating doubt 
and desires that are dangerous and leading to disobedience. According to Paul, that can happen with Christians, right? Same strategy that brought sin into the world. He said, I'm afraid you Christians might be led astray in your minds by the enemy. So, friends, now you know where sin came from. Now you know about this conversation that changed everything. Watch out. Keep that simple, pure devotion to Christ strong. So that you can stand against those games that the enemy plays with our minds. Because it brought sin into the world. And it has the ability to lead us to disobedience, even as God's people. So, next week we're going to find out, okay, they disobeyed, they ate, both of them. Their eyes were opened. How did they respond? What did they do when they realized what had happened? That's in the next part of Genesis 3. We'll talk about it next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Father, so often your word answers questions for us, and, and here we see how sin came into the world. We, we see how um, in the midst of this paradise that you gave to man, sin came into the world. And so, Father, I, I, I pray that you would just take the things we've talked about and things that were said and, and, and use them, whatever your plan is, for each one of us as we reflect and, and think more on these things. And, God, I pray that you'll prepare us to come back next week and see how this first man, this first woman, these first sinners responded to their sin. We look forward to it, Lord, because it's your word. In Jesus' name, amen.